Welcome to Behavioral Groups, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We like to explore our human condition with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a fun and conversational tone that hopefully makes you laugh while we learn. Well, I definitely, definitely laugh. Yeah, at me? <laughs> no, no, no. Mostly with you, I oh. hope, not at you. Uh, this I was is a communal kidding. laugh, right? Uh, I was just getting worried there, taking me back to those <laughs> awkward teenage years and, and this morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People laughing. Not, not nearly as awkward of teenage years as I had, I am sure. But, but anyway, we digress. We wanted to start off by just saying thank you. Thank you to our listeners for listening to Behavioral Grooves. And we're going to ask a favor of you. You see, we want to add 10 more reviews for our show. Yeah. Apple and other pod services, they use algorithms that look at the number of reviews that a show has received in the past week as part of their recommendation process. So our goal is to get 10 more reviews in this next week. So we are hoping that you can help us out with that. If you want, if you want, you could go out and do it right now. We're okay waiting for you. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we're waiting. Really? Go, go ahead. Okay. If you didn't go out and leave a review now, then maybe you could just set up a when-then scenario to do it. So uh -huh. a behavioral science trick here, like when this great episode is done, I'm going to go and leave a review. They might have that. Yeah, or it could be like before I brush my teeth tonight, I will go out and leave a review for behavioral grooves. Yeah. Or it could be, oh, wait, I think they got the idea. We can, right? we can temptation <laughs> bundle this. So leave Ooh. a review while you're on the treadmill because leaving a review would be so much fun and so, and an indulgence <laughs> and you'd be doing it while you're on the treadmill, which nobody likes to be on the treadmill. No, I, I was thinking you were going to go the other way that we needed to have a temptation <laughs> like, for people to do. So as you're leaving your review, you can eat that chocolate or have your, your bowl of ice cream. When you allow yourself to have a bowl of ice cream, you need to write a review for behavioral groups. How about that? All kinds of wonderful ways of framing it. Yeah. Okay. All right. On with the show. Today's guest is Larry Sen, PhD and pioneer in the field of corporate culture. He founded Sen Delaney as a culture-shaping firm back in 1978 based on his principal finding that organization becomes shadows of their leaders. Larry works with CEO teams and organizations from top to bottom to create the behaviors needed to support strategies and enhance business results. Larry is the developer of the Mood Elevator, which is a way of exploring moods moment by moment. And he was recently named the father of corporate culture by CEO Forum Magazine. Larry is a super positive person and his energy is infectious in a good way. Aren't all moods contagious, basically? Yes, yes, they are. So with that, sit back with your mood-altering drink of choice and listen to our conversation with Larry Sen. Larry Sen, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Welcome, thank you. We are super excited to have you here. And as always, we start with a speed round. So... Larry, would you rather learn a new language or a new instrument? Which would you prefer? A new instrument. 
Okay. Do you have any any idea what that instrument is? Oh, is God, there one? I in- wish I could play a guitar and sing ah! to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. Coffee or tea? Oh, God. Both. Oh. Coffee in the morning, tea throughout the day. There you go. We, we've, had, we've had lots of guests who have said similar things where it's like coffee in the morning or coffee in the afternoon. I don't understand the coffee afternoon people, but I do understand the coffee morning, tea, tea the rest of the day people. All right. Would you rather have dinner with your favorite rock star or your favorite athlete? Favorite athlete. Okay. And again, anybody come to mind? I'd want to find an Olympian, a gymnast. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Uh, okay. So uh, last speed round question, Larry. So if we're going to uh, ask adults to change their behaviors, wouldn't it just be the most straightforward thing just to tell them what they need to do and have them do it? They won't do it. You ever try to tell somebody to listen? <laughs> Did they listen? No, they don't. <laughs> so doesn't work so tell way. us about tell us about your work in this area. Well, I was been fascinated by peak human performance much of my life. And I was a gymnast in my early day. And uh, I got to share Pauly building with uh, John Wooden, the famous coach. Uh, oh, my gosh. As I coached a gymnastics team. As I started work with a consulting firm, I uh, had the pleasure of working with a guy named Sam in a little town called Bentonville, a little small place called Walmart in the <laughs> 60s. And, he, and uh, I was an engineer by background. And Jim Delaney, my partner, and I were called in to be part of a dream team because Sam had this vision of low-cost goods to rural America. Yeah. We'd do that by taking all the cost out of the process from manufacturer to customer and having his happy box with the greeter. Yeah. And it was just incredible team to work on. We just reinvented retailing. I was trying to do the same thing at Woolworth at the same time, and it was like going to the morgue. Just a bunch of old men. They were sitting around wow. a table, and we couldn't change anything. And I said to myself, oh, my God. That little company in Bentonville, this is the 60s, is going to take over the world, and this big company is going to die. There's something they didn't teach me about human performance. What is it they have here? And that was my quest to write the first research on culture. But the question I faced is just the one you posed. How do you change habits of adults? How do you take already successful people? And and the finding of my dissertation was that you got to start at the top because of a phenomenon I discovered called shadow of the leader. A parent or a leader casts a shadow, and you can see it. And so the normal models of behavior change are what you described. You define it, and you say, hey, everybody says you need to listen better. And they say, oh, yeah, I, I, I believe that. But do they listen? No. <laughs> How do you take successful adults who might be territorial? They might not be trusty. They might not be collaborative. All these things and change it. And I ran upon an early social scientist, a guy named Kurt Lewin. And he had this theory about organizations, and and he had this phrase that caught my attention. He said, when we're young, we're like a flowing river, and then we freeze. We freeze. You see people in life, you can almost see the ear in which they freeze. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And his theory was, unless they had epiphanies, unless you could unfreeze them, you couldn't change behavior. And I thought about that, and I said, oh, my God, I'm an engineer by background. Why don't I engineer epiphanies around collaboration? around trust. And I built what's called an insight or aha-based learning model. You have to learn from the inside because you think about people you know who've changed significantly in their life. They usually had some significant life event. Uh, Something happened that got their attention. 
And so how do you do that in a positive way? And that's really where our unfreezing methodology, which is at the core of our culture shaping work, came from. Fantastic. So how do you engineer epiphanies? I mean, it, it seems like an epiphany is one of those things that happens to you out of the blue, right? It's lightning striking. It's all of these different pieces. It doesn't feel like it should be able to be engineered, but it seems like you have a process for that. Well, a simple little example, and incidentally, you cannot describe an epiphany <laughs> in a conversation. That's, it's like trying to tell you what it's like to look out my window here and see the ocean. I can't describe it. But, but there are some simple ways. For example, a very simple one. At the beginning of our session, we have a segment called The Human Operating System. In fact, we've got a book called The Human Operating System, an Owner's Manual. And <laughs> it describes phenomenon of human behavior. And one of those, we, we put a fairly long sentence on the screen. And we say, count the number of Fs as in Frank. Okay. And then we, at the end, we say, okay, how much are you willing to bet you're right? And they're betting <laughs> all kinds of money. They're right. They're wrong. They always miss things. So a human phenomenon is that we have blind spots. And then we put something else up and say, write what you see. And everybody writes something different. And we have selective perception. And they're going, oh my God, how did I miss that? And that might not be a bolt of lightning, but it does cause one to say why. And then I say, well, the next time you're absolutely sure you're right, remember the Fs because mm. <laughs> you probably uh, something. Yeah. Remember that with your spouse. Remember that with your friends. Remember that at work. And that's just as simple, but we do hour-long epiphanies where we play a game where they're supposed to cooperate and they try to kill each other. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then what happens is it gets, gains the epiphany. The model is this. You have to give them an insight, an aha. But then they have to reflect because that's what they do. And so we have them sit back, quiet music, journal. How was the way I played that game a mirror of my life? How do I do that at work and at home? Write that out, okay? And then share that with someone else. So this experience, reflect, share, then commit is the model we use to change behaviors. Does that make sense? Hey, everybody, we just want to break in here because we're going to do this a little different today with our grooving parts. And we wanted to groove specifically on epiphanies right now in the moment. So, Tim, what did you think about Larry's idea that you can engineer having these epiphanies? I love it. I love that he is also willing to say it's a lightning bolt, that there's an aspect of it that we're not going to just we can't just create lightning bolts at any time we want to, but we can lay the foundation. We can lay out the prompting and the priming for how to get there with either good information or with some kind of an emotional <laughs> connection. To me, it seemed to feel like, reminded me of our conversation with Jonathan Mann when he talked about, can you create an experience? And part of that experience is, is what we're anticipating, what we're expecting to go into. Part of it is the experience itself. And then of course, another part of it is what we remember and how we recollect that experience. And so that epiphany to me is is very similar. The epiphany can be prompted and primed, and the foundation for that can lead to an anticipation of what actually happens in the moment that we get that good information. I think it's a really powerful thing. Well, and I like the concept of showing people their own blind spots or showing them that you're sure about this, and yet we can demonstrate, and we can do that through these exercises that showcase, hey, you think it's one thing, but the person next to you thinks it's something else. And the other person across the room thinks it's something even different. And therefore, how do you 
reconcile that? How do you bring that back in? Which then gets you, as as Larry was saying, gets you to rethink all these things I'm certain about. And I loved, he said, you know, that it's just that simple. And sometimes it's those simple pieces that drive that insight, drive that lightning bolt. And he said, it doesn't need to be a lightning bolt, but it's this awareness that we are not always 100%. It's that confirmation bias maybe being a little bit questioned, a little bit of uh, the dogma that we have being unveiled and lowering down some of the curtains that are hiding the thoughts that we go into and saying, hey, this isn't necessarily how it is. And I think the piece for me of this is if I'm a business leader, what can I do with my team? What can I do with my organization to get them to bring those veils down, to get some of these aha moments, to get us thinking that the way that we thought about this may not be the right way. It might be, but let's at least explore that. And I thought that was really kind of cool. And I like the idea of engineering epiphanies. It's just a cool thought. That's excellent. We're going to take you back into our conversation with Larry. We're going to pick up more on Kurt Lewin and culture. Yeah, that that's fantastic. I also want to go back to this aha moment that you have with Kurt Lewin because yes. Kurt Nelson is a big <laughs> fan of Kurt Lewin and also has a PhD, like you, has a PhD in organizational behavior. So you two are pretty much like blood brothers at this point. But uh, but, <laughs> but Larry, being aware of Kurt Lewin's work was one thing, but to to start to adapt it this one comment, what what was the, the catalyst that got you going down this path of using Kurt Lewin's work in, in your work and developing the tools that you did? Well, I'll get real personal with you then, okay? I, because I'd been studying this thing called culture. I'd written my doctoral dissertation as the first study in the world on culture. I've been trying to form a model to do culture, and I couldn't quite figure out how to do that. And I was also a fairly unconscious overly busy traveling consultant myself. <laughs> and I had, I had married my Sunday school sweetheart. We'd actually never even dated anybody else. We married in college. We had three beautiful little boys. And all of a sudden, the kids are starting to grow up. And my wife said, oh, my God, I've been a good mother. I've been a good wife. I've been a good daughter. I never got mine. <laughs> and she left me. And that just devastated me. That was, that was my end. And, and coming out of that, I, I began to try to learn about myself. And I got involved in some human potential uh, courses. And I was actually in one of those advanced courses. I actually ended up being co-owner of this human potential company. But I was in an advanced training doing a closed eye process. And I had this flash, oh my God, you know more about culture than anybody else. And, and you're being deeply impacted in the inside. You're learning things about yourself. What if you could do this in business establishments? What if you could do this it's, they're using music. They're using reflective processes. Yeah. That? And, that, and I didn't know how to do training. I didn't know anything, but I knew there was something there. And that began development of the process, which became a company, which is, you know, worked around the world in, you know, 30 countries <laughs> with a million people. Yeah. I mean, Kurt Lewin, again, is one of my heroes from a behavioral science. A, has a great first name. B, <laughs> uh, he went to the University of Iowa, taught there for, for a while, which is my alma mater. But he also, you know, so you, you talk about the freeze, unfreeze, freeze model that he had. And he also had a, a behavior change model, which is looking at, you know, behaviors driven by ability 
plus environment and, and, and various different aspects of that. And so there's some really interesting pieces that he brings to the thing. So in your application of, of Lewin's in, insights into the culture work, where were the key? So getting that deep insight, different things, how do you take that then to a larger organization? You can see you doing it on individual levels, but how do you then transfer that to that larger organization? So what's interesting is something else Lewin said you might not be aware of, which also pointed my work. He said that the immediate social group determines behavior. The immediate social group determines behavior. So people around you, like peer group, do that. And so what I concluded was it had to be a team-based model. It's not individual learning. It's only, and it's a leader and team. And it begins ideally with a CEO and the senior team because they cast the most powerful shadow. And that's led me to work with, I work with 100 Fortune 500 CEOs on that. And so it begins with them. And then some work by Cotter at Harvard said, you need to get the top 100, 150 people on board to change a culture. So you've got to then take the leader and their team, then the teams under the leader and their team and get them on board. Then we train internal facilitators into a transfer of competence. So we have clients that have taken uh, 30,000 people through this process in the organization. Many of those have taken 10, 20, 30,000 people through the process through a transfer of competence to them. Wow. And then, a re- then you have to reinforce that. So once you unfreeze, you then reinforce, then you apply, then you measure. That's our change model. I love it. I love it. I want to go back, go back to the point where you were talking about working with the people from Woolworth, but also the small company. And for people <laughs> who, who think about Walmart today and go, that was never a small company. It was really a, a pretty small company in the 60s and yeah. even into the 70s. It was, you know, so what was the different? Was it just that the Woolworth was so entrenched that it was so difficult for them to see beyond? And Sam was still relatively, hey, looking at things and trying to disrupt an entire industry. Was there something there? So another principle came out in that, and that is the power of purpose. I mean, I'm driven in my life today. I still work today because of purpose. I have a personal purpose. And that drives me, gets me up every morning. And Sam had this vision of low-cost goods to rural America, changing the quality of life for rural America. And he enlisted, he was like an evangelist. And people want to be a part of that cause. The only purpose I could say at Woolworth was to maintain the status quo. <laughs> ah, wow. That's not, that's not very compelling, is it? <laughs> it's not, no. And, and don't change things. And, and uh, so that was it. And I said to myself, aha, oh my God, look at these two companies. They're in the same business doing the same things. There's something there they didn't teach me in school. And so that led back to a professor at USC who'd written a paper called Organizational Character. And I said to him, you know, I have to understand this thing. And he says, you know, we want to understand it too. We've been looking for a student to study it. What if we paid your way through the doctoral program? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) So I got tuition, books, a little stipend while I ran my little consulting firm and studied this stuff for like six years to finally get there. But that's the journey. Oh, that's a fantastic journey. So you you kind of teed up this idea that uh, Sam Walton's purpose, the power of purpose for Sam Walton was huge. It is also for you. And uh, I think that there's some important things that we should talk about in your in your life in a broader in the, the with the big L, not just the little L. But so tell us about your purpose. My purpose is to help more and more people. And that's why I'm with you today. Uh, live life at their best, mentally, emotionally, 
physically and spiritually. So it's to help more and more people be their best self. And my fundamental belief is we all come into the world with a best self. And my mother told me as a child, you're, you know, you're born in the image and likeness of God. Your natural state is be compassionate, loving, wise, successful. That's your, that's your given state. And then what happens is we get these thought systems, these beliefs, like for me to win, you have to lose, <laughs> and things like that, that then come in and thought drives our, our behaviors, thought drives our moods. And so that's what happens. And so we're really trying to not teach people something, but get them back to the essence of who they are. And that is at their best. And so then I began to say, well, how do you help people live life at their best? How do you do that? And that began to evolve into some tools to do that. Fantastic. Along those lines, tell us about the mood elevator. Okay. So what's interesting is we all live life along this continuum. I have my gratitude journal every night I write in. So from gratitude at the top, because that's an overriding emotion, on down to other great states like resourceful, creative, appreciative. And then, then we get down to irritated, bothered, <laughs> impatient, <laughs> judgmental, self-righteous, angry, depressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and we, on the spe- this is all on the spectrum, right? You, you were going from the top down. As okay, a good. human being, we live along this any moment every day. We do. And but wouldn't it be great if there's some buttons you could push <laughs> that could, you know, very few elevators fall to the basement that they got to stop. <laughs> and so there's a stop in the mood elevator. And that's that, that's an interesting uh, concept. It's a chapter in the book. It's about being curious versus judgmental in life. And so it, it's a tool and it's nothing more than our feelings. So, you know, if you think about, I'll ask you, Kurt, when you're at the very best, when you're top of your game. What's one feeling that's common to you? Okay, so folks, we're breaking in here because we want to emphasize this idea of two things, actually, culture and the mood elevator. It's really worth noting that the mood elevator is maybe a super undervalued tool in the way that we think about the world. Now, Larry's going to talk about that more later, so we're not going to go into a deep explanation, but it's a great way of reminding us that the way that we process reality, the way that we experience it is largely through our feelings. This is a central fact to what the mood elevator can do for us is by allowing us to hit a button and change the mood, change the emotions that we're processing reality through. Yeah, let's take that elevator and don't press the basement floors, press those (laughs) upper floors if we can. And I think it was really fascinating, the story that Larry tells about how he was interested in Kurt Lewin, which led to some of these other factors. And then the story of Woolworth versus Walmart, which led him to this, look, this isn't something I learned in business school. These two companies are doing the same thing, and yet they have very different results which led to his study of culture and got him interested in this idea that culture has an impact on organizational performance, which is really, I think, one of the key concepts of this entire conversation. And one that we know from an inherent perspective as people, But do we place enough emphasis on it? And I think that is a really key piece here is let's take this idea of culture and how it impacts the organization. And then let's take this idea of a mood elevator, which is piece that we can think about how our emotions impact our way we behave and how we show up, which in turn impacts culture. 
I think a sense of fulfillment. I think there's there's an element of that this going back to your purpose, right? There's this element that I'm doing something that is with a purpose that is larger than me. Yes. So. Right. And when you're there, you're more inspired. You're yeah. more creative. Your thoughts are flowing better. Ideas are dropping in. Okay. You're in the flow of life. Okay. But how about when you're really off your game? For example, I know I'm headed south, but I start to get more easily irritated and bothered. <laughs> but I get impatient. Or then I start to get judgmental. Let's <laughs> <I> say stop. <laughs> but, and, and what's funny, I mean, not funny, but uh, with my wife and myself, we have this little thing where often it is the spouse who can recognize that sooner than the other. And and we will call each other, you know, you're kind of grumpy today. And it's like, oh, yeah, I guess I am. Right. It, yes. You don't even necessarily realize yeah. it, but you're like, you're shorter. You're you're more snippy. You you know, it, it takes a lot less to, to get that trigger to go. And you kind of respond in a way that you don't normally would just let that roll off your back. And so it's really nice, at least with in my relationship where we can call each other out and we, we we're it's OK. It's not like you're pointing fingers at that. It's like you're just making that aware for the other person to go. Oh, yeah. All right. I need to figure out what's going on. So yes, yeah, an interesting one in our relationship. Have you ever, or the listener might think about this, have you ever said something to a loved one you wish you could take back? <laughs> no, no, the question is how many times has that, has that have you ever sent an email you shouldn't have sent? <laughs> yeah. so, oh, man. so I can guarantee you you were down the mood elevator because here's the thing to understand: your thinking is always unreliable mm. in the lower mood states. It's unreliable. And when you feel compelled to do something, you need to be able to catch that because bite your tongue. So we have this deal. My wife and I got married in the in the 70s when it was kind of tell it like it is and don't go to bed at night with anything unsaid. And some nights she couldn't go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we both learned this together. I mean, she was part of the company for a time. And we made this deal. We would not take anything on if either of us were in the lower floor of the mood elevator. Ah. And she'll, I'll say, do you want to talk about it, honey? No, not right now. We can do it later. But later, it's just to kind of buy the wage. I didn't even know. And it scared the hell out of me because the drama went out of our relationship. <laughs> the fight and makeup has, has scared me. But I have this pretty tranquil, loving relationship because we just understand that. That simple yeah. notion. Be aware when you're down. So tranquility isn't such a bad thing. Is that what you, is that what you're saying <laughs> in a relationship? <laughs> it, it's once you get used to it, it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got to get used to it, though, right? Get used to it, yes. So, Larry, why is grateful at the top of the mood elevator? Why you have wise, you have insightful, creative, innovative, or other you know kind of right up there, but grateful is at the top. What what is it about being grateful that is the keystone piece for you? It's an overriding emotion. Okay. When you are truly grateful, you cannot be angry. You cannot be resentful because you have perspective on life. You mm. realize how blessed you are. You realize the many things that you have in your life. And, and therefore, you're more magnanimous. Uh, you're calmer. You don't take things as personal. I would suggest that probably for business, I didn't put up. But the other one that might be up there is love. Love in the sense of agape. You know, uh, to yeah. love, love of mankind, love of, of people. Uh, those are, that's also, if you can be loving, forgiving, understanding, life is just different. You, you mentioned that you have a gratitude journal. 
Yeah. Is that something you've been you've been doing that for a while? So help our listeners understand what does that do? And is it something that they should maybe adopt or maybe something that Tim and me should adopt? Well, as you probably know, Kurt, some fascinating work was done uh, by Martin Seligman in, when he wrote his book, Flourish, What Causes Us to Flourish. And he talked about this thing called the three blessings. Mm. And the three blessings they determine scientifically is almost as powerful as drugs <laughs> or therapy <laughs> to people's well-being. But what's right. interesting about it is I, in my graduate journal in the back, I've got, I wrote the big G. There are certain things that are really big, like my, my family, yeah. my, my relation with my wife, my health. But if you try to say that every day, you'd say the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> would. So it's looking for the little things. So, you know, like my dog was kissing me yesterday and crawled up in my lap. So I wrote that down. I, uh, my wife made this great salmon taco we had last night. Uh, <laughs> I wrote that down. Okay. Yeah. And she gave me a hug, came up, gave me a spontaneous hug. So there's just these, and when I sit down some days and say, I don't have anything, but if I sit there for even five minutes and start to think, Oh yeah. And I took that walk and then I saw the sunset and then I did this. And all of a sudden, I end up, it's supposed to be three, I end up with sometimes 10. Things. Yeah. And I say, oh, my God, you know, I didn't even realize that. Okay, we're breaking in here, Tim, because I think this idea of gratitude is central to this entire conversation. When we think about this concept that gratitude is at the top of the mood elevator, and it's there for a reason. It's there because when you have gratitude, as Larry says, you can't have resentment. You can't have anger. It's this epiphany of, of the world. I think that that's a key piece of this. It really is. And it really struck me about this love of one another, love of mankind, this agape uh, is brought into modern, you know, modern language with John Levy and mm. assume benevolence and Hanlon's razor. And it's let's not attribute to malice, which we could just attribute to stupidity. I don't think it's intended to be you're an you know, an asshole stupid. It's just, you're, you're not aware. You're not knowledgeable. You know, you're lacking in knowledge and, and gosh, that just goes so long in the whole damn world <laughs> in all of our, in all of our relationships, whether we know somebody or not, if we just assume benevolence, it's a really, really great way of, of living, a, as far as I'm concerned, living a happier life too, just on a personal basis. I agree 100%. It's this the intentionality, right? It was uh, Cialdini who said, you know, lead or assume good intentions. That's his one thing of leaving us with. And I think that's great. And I think what Larry's talking about here too, with this idea of gratitude is you can help yourself by searching for those things to be grateful for. And we can find things to be grateful for even in horrible days. This idea that, my God, this day was sucky. It's shitty. <laughs> it just bit the big one. But if we search for things that we can be grateful for, then that day doesn't seem so shitty. That day doesn't seem so bad. And it's okay to fake it till you make it. It's, <laughs> it is. It is okay if it doesn't feel completely sincere and organic at the beginning. Because Larry is just saying, find something. Hey, my wife made great salmon. The tacos were fantastic. And you might get the eye roll from your loved ones if they're like, okay, you know, enough. The salmon was just fine. But if you don't start somewhere, you're never going to get anywhere. You have to start. 
it's that blessing in disguise, as his wife said. And yeah. I love that concept. And so with yeah. that, we're going to go back into the conversation with Larry and talk a little bit more about culture. Do, do you ever, would be on the outward appearance, negative events that happen to you? And I, I will go back and give a little story of myself because I used to do a, I, I would do a blog back, you know, well before this podcast ever came on. And I would do, try to do a daily blog and different things. And every, every once in a while, I do these gratitude blogs. And oftentimes the gratitude blogs were things that weren't gratitude at the outset. So one time I had a car and the window wouldn't roll up and it was the middle of winter in Minnesota. So it was cold and I had to drive around. But there was this element of that I ended up writing this gratitude blog about this because it made me realize that I can get that, the window will be fixed tomorrow and that I have the wherewithal to be able to do that. And I am not somebody who has to drive around with a window that is constantly down in the middle of winter. So it was taking a negative situation that happened to me and turning it around. And is that something that the gratitude is is intended for? Or? Absolutely. In fact, uh, one of the chapters in the Mood Elevator book is called, Why Did That Happen For Me? <laughs> oh, I love that twist. Why did that happen for me, just instead of why that happened to me. And my, my wife was very wise. I'll keep referring to her, Bernadette, said she wants in her tombstone blessing in disguise because she <laughs> everything is a blessing in disguise. And I, my, uh, my scientific reasoning behind that is if my outlook is that everything is a blessing in disguise, I look for that blessing. I find that blessing and I make a blessing out of something that might not have been if I stayed in a negative state. Yeah. And it happens all the time. In fact, uh, I mean, the biggest blessing in my life was my wife, first wife leaving me because I would not have found Bernadette and we had two more children and wow. it my life. I would not have gone to this seminar and learned about unfreezing experientially myself and I wouldn't have started Send Delaney. It wouldn't have touched, you know, a million people. <laughs> None of that would have happened <laughs> had, had the most devastating thing in my life not happened. Yeah. I know that. That is so fascinating. And I just got to stop for just a second and say, thank you for just being this very incredibly open and candid and generous person that you are, because I think that that, I feel like while you've got these great words of wisdom, you're also conveying, you're living the life that you believe in. You know, you are, yes. you know, struggling with, at the end of a day, struggling with a gratitude journal at first, and then coming up with 10 things is just a great example of how challenging life can be, even just writing down good things. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it is. So I want to go back to this, to the gratitude journal. And so you, is this something you do every single day? Are, are you completely consistent in this with a, I a daily? I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm too tired some night and I fall down. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it's there. It's just a routine. It's become a habit. It's a positive it for me. It is. Yeah. yeah. And and so what kind of challenges do you encounter? I guess what I'm wondering is what tips would you give people who want to start a gratitude journal and what might be the barriers that would keep them from doing it? Like, oh, I don't have time or, you know, I'm, I'm too busy or I'm too tired or those kinds of things. Well, how would you encourage people to actually get into it? The benefits for one, I think just sitting there quietly and thinking about those things is a much more conducive state to go to sleep. Ah, yeah. You don't, because usually the reason we don't, we don't go to sleep, we've got all these thoughts. And I should talk, because our thinking drives our life. Mm. We're making a movie every moment of every day, and we're the director, we're the producer. And the movie is based on our thinking, because our thinking creates our reality. 
And so if I can be thinking of something, if I can force myself to think of some positive things that calms my mind down, make it happen. And so it, it, it's that. And the other thing is just be willing to look for just the little things. You know, I, I tend not to eat desserts, but I've got this little jar of, I've got these chocolate covered almonds. I pretend the almond is healthy. <laughs> and I'll have a couple of those at night and just that taste. You know, so many things are, it's funny. We start to write them down. A lot of things have for me have to do with something I ate, even though I, I'm not a big food <laughs> fan, but I do. But uh, and then my family and my dog and my walks and nature. But just be willing to look for those little things. I in a hotel had a nice pillow. <laughs> okay, that's all right. Yeah. But it is those little things that really. We were talking with another person today. It was, it was talking about little things in business can make a difference, right? He was doing, he'd done some research with lawyers and the really successful lawyers were were ones that he had done this research that said, hey, it, it isn't always about the big things. It's like showing up on time. It's being, you know, there and present when you're interacting with your client and those little things. And I think that is very true with life as well. It It isn't getting that big house. It's It's appreciating that Hey, I have a really good pillow. I have uh, this, you know, dog that licks me, and I, I appreciate that. And but here's the science I think behind that, and that is that uh, we talk a lot about in our work about the role of thought mm-hmm. that our thinking creates our behavior. So if we can have a gratitude perspective, if we can have this perspective in life, we don't ignore what isn't working, but if we can see it in the context of what we have, then our our thinking goes to a more positive place, our feelings go to a more positive place, we move up the mood elevator. And so this understanding that we are the thinker and we are creating this. And if we can find ways to have more often have thoughts, real sincere thoughts about our life and acknowledge them, then we'll feel life that way. Because the role of thought, if all we think about is what we don't like and don't have, that is our experience of life too. That's our total life also. Right. And so this this mental fitness, if you will, is correlated to your your commitment to physical fitness as well. You've been a life lifelong uh, athlete, you know, for lack of a, of a better word. Can you talk about the interplay between mental fitness and physical fitness? Yeah, we know scientifically that people who are run down catch colds more easily because our immune system's impaired. People who are run down physically catch moods far more easily. <laughs> and so simple things like most people are sleep deprived. <laughs> You'd be in a better mood if you got some more sleep. We know that, but we have beliefs. So it's our beliefs that get in our way. Our belief that I need to work hard, get it all done, make this happen. I'll be a good person. I put in a lot of hours. I don't think that way. I think if, I'm, if I take care of myself, I'll be my best self. Yeah. I'm more in, in, inspirational. I want to be more influencing to make that happen. So one thing is just taking care of yourself physically. Another is exercise. And just you get free endorphins. So and you clear your mind and you get great ideas. So whether it's walking or running, making sure you do that to make it happen. Now, how many people know they should exercise more, but don't? Most people. Okay. So what's the answer to that? Okay. It's back to purpose. So for me, here's how it goes. I was a a good athlete in college. I was a national champion gymnastics, but like everybody, I get a, got a bit out of shape in my mid thirties. Okay. And, and I started to get back in shape then, but what really did it was uh, when Burnett and I got married, she came to me about 15 years later and said, you know, when we got married, I told you I might want a child of my own someday. 
And I said, isn't there a statute of limitations? <laughs> well, I said, yes, honey, because happy wife, happy life. Okay. So we had a daughter, Kendra, and I was in my 50s. Then she came to me about 10 years later and she said, you know, I was in the doctor's office the other day. And I said, you know, my big regret is I didn't have another child. And she, he said, oh, you've got a very young body. You could have another child. Problem <laughs> is, she's 51. I'm 64. Okay. <laughs> wow. So at, at 65, we have Logan, our son. Okay. And that's when I started to exercise more. <laughs> in fact, when I, that's when I took up my, I, I started running more. I started biking some. Then I said, hey, I can do mini triathlons, the sprint triathlons. So I did my first sprint triathlon at the age of 70. And I've done 65 of them since. I had one, one last year. I haven't done it yet this year because of COVID. But I, so I now compete in the 85 and over category. I, as my son says when I come home, Dad, I'll bet you came in first and last in your age group again. <laughs> <laughs> and he's probably right, right? <laughs> you, yeah. But you are undefeated. In, in, I am undefeated in... so far. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The purpose is to take care of myself for my family, for Logan, because we still bodyboard in the ocean. We still do all kinds of things. And it's to do the work I do because I love this work and I need energy to do it. Yeah. And I think so many people have this preconceived idea that at a certain age, I need to start acting in a certain way. And what I what you have just described blows that out of the water and basically says, no, it is, as you said, our thinking, you know, drives who we are. And so if I think that this is possible and that this is who I am, then the, the sky's the limit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So to what degree do you think we should, people are not doing a good job of sort of owning their own feelings, their own emotions, their own moods? Yeah, it's interesting. We tend to blame the world mm. for our feelings. You know, if I may, a quick story to illustrate that though. So there's this guy who, about the role of thought, there's this guy who he's about to leave work and his buddy tells him they're going to shut down his division of the business. He doesn't want to scare his wife, so he goes and sits on a park bench. And the first thing he does is get pretty depressed. His neighbor lost his job and lost his house. His kid wants to go to this college, so he's way down at the bottom. Then he starts getting mad at the company. Why would they do that? Then he says, well, wait a minute. This guy's always starting rumors. <laughs> it's probably not even true. So he kind of goes up to neutral. Then he says, wait a minute. I hate this job. <laughs> Maybe I can get a package and I can start my dog grooming business. That's what I want to do. And he starts to get excited about the future and really happy about that. Then a kid walks by and he says, why am I sitting on the bench here? When I go home, Johnny's going to run up and say, dad, I love you. I'm a grateful, I'm a blessed man. So what caused him to ride that from depression, anger, neutrality to joy? Nothing but his thinking, his thoughts. So we blame the world on things, but really it's what we make of life. That's what it is. And we make of it in our thinking. Yeah. Larry Wilson, Pecos River founder and, and Wilson Learning founder, and wrote a great book, Play to Win, Not to Lose, was in a couple of his conferences. And he did a very similar kind of story of, you know, this idea that, hey, ruminations that people have in the middle of the night, like, oh, the, my boss sent me a terse email okay, that means he doesn't like me. Oh, that means I'm going to get fired. Oh, that means that we're going to lose our house. Oh, then my wife is going to leave me. Then I'm going to be destitute. Out on and, and it just is this constant peace. And he said, look, if you can stop that play at the very beginning and not take it down those negative loops, 
you have a much better thing. And I think that's what you're saying about this mood elevator piece too. And is that it might, am I correct in that? Absolutely. In fact, my nickname for that is living under the freeway in a cardboard box. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And we once had a consultant and she was newly hired and she lived in Houston. So I decided to take her with her to meet the CEO I was going to meet. And she spent the night before thinking, I'm not a salesperson. I'm new here. I shouldn't have left my other job. I'm going to be fired. She says, in the morning, Larry, I was in a freeway in a cardboard box. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. There it is. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Larry, one last question on business. So taking this back into the, the corporate world, what, what do you see as the biggest problems facing corporate culture these days? And I don't know if COVID has impacted that or not, but what do you just see as the biggest uh, culture issues within organizations. Well, what's interesting is that COVID itself has been bad as it's been, has been an unfreezing event mm. for most companies. It's blown away the thinking about work from home. It's blown away thinking about many things. And so companies actually find they're a little bit less bureaucratic. They're a little bit more authentic. Uh, they're a little bit less hierarchical. So hanging on to those is an important thing. The problem is that culture is such a deep-seated, unconscious behavior in organizations. It's a habit. It's a deep habit. And, and most processes to shape culture don't work because they move from the diagnose to the, the reinforce and they skip the unfreeze. And so unless you have some way to get people's really attention. Uh, and so part of that is to have a great purpose and to work on purpose to make that happen. But part of it is really, you need to have some way to get people to really think more deeply about their habits and change those. And that's that's not how leaders are. I'm a leader. I'm supposed to have the answers. I'm a leader. I'm not supposed to make mistakes. I'm a leader. I'm supposed to be in charge. Beliefs, beliefs, beliefs. So the inability to shift beliefs and is the biggest thing they face. And the way they've got and the place they've got to do that at most is at the CEO level at the top, because mm -hmm. that'll have the biggest impact. So Peter Drucker was attributed with that saying that uh, uh, culture eats strategy for lunch, right? Yeah, breakfast. That, uh, that's right. Breakfast, breakfast or for breakfast, yeah. excuse me. It's one of the meals. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, to, to what degree do you, do you agree with him? We actually have some data that proves he's right. In fact, the CEOs today believe that culture is even more important than strategy to success because you can't implement the, the strategy without the culture. And so I think the world has intellectually gotten to a place where it's actually, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell who said the tipping point. Mm -hmm. I become convinced that culture is the greatest predictor of an organization's future. And so my life purpose has been about really cultures because not just people, but how do you shape whole societies, organizations? Actually, uh, Kurt Lewin in an obscure writing said that perhaps the way to change the world is through businesses or through organizations because most people are in one. And that got my attention because my goal is about how do you, how do you touch the world? How do you have a world better led? That's our purpose at Hydric. How do you, a world better led? Passionate about that. And so it is important. It's here now. Just has to move from intellectual to more internal. Okay. So Larry talks about culture here, but this was all predicated by this idea that our thinking creates our behaviors. And I thought that was really key to this, Tim. I thought that this idea that our thoughts impact our behavior is kind of a keystone piece of this entire conversation. It absolutely is. And 
to think that we're experiencing reality through the lens of our emotions, even though our emotions are being influenced unconsciously by culture and by the people, the relationships that we're working with and where we're at in the day. And did we have coffee this morning and a thousand other things, right? We're still in that experience of being on the Zoom call with our boss and five associates. And we know that there's a culture and this is the way that we talk within our culture. And we have this useful delusion, as Shankar Vinantam would say, that we're all buying into that this is the way the culture works. And yet it's it's this loop, right? Yeah. While we're, we're saying, well, our unconscious is processing, this is the way that we deal with our culture. It's influencing our emotions, which is then the lens that we're viewing how we're thinking about stuff. Which comes back to his part where he talked about our beliefs get in the way, right? It's our beliefs about what makes a good person. It's our beliefs about what makes a good culture. It's our beliefs about what makes this this corporate work and different pieces. And so this idea that the way we think about it, those beliefs that we hold impact the behaviors that we have. And as you said, it's this loop. So... The culture, if if the if the corporate culture belief is that you need to work until 9 p.m. in order to be a good employee, that's a different culture and driving different behaviors than the company that says, no, I want you to have a well-rounded life and make sure that you go and spend time with your family. Very different corporations as a result. And if you go back to the very initial piece where he started talking about what got him interested in culture, Woolworth versus Walmart. The idea, if you just look at the outcomes, that's a big piece. And culture is key. And I loved how he brought in this fact that today, culture is even more important. And he's talking through this concept that, hey, culture is key to an organization's success. And so if you are in a company, you need to really pay attention and be engineering this concept of what your culture is going to be. I thought that that was cool. And just one thought on that. You don't have to be the CEO to engineer culture. Anyone in the organization can start to orchestrate and arrange and curate the kind of culture that you think will be most beneficial to getting the job done. Yeah. And and he brought up Kurt Lewin again about this, which is just freaking <laughs> awesome. But this idea that that culture is the greatest predictor of an organization's future. And I think if there's one piece that you take out of this interview, it's this idea that you have to work on culture. Doesn't matter, as you said, doesn't matter if you're the CEO or if you're the janitor that's uh, at the bottom of the, the corporate ladder you all play into this because it is this feedback loop. It's the stories we tell about the company that make this culture a reality. And that is a key piece of this. And so I th- I just thought that was really important. It was. It is. It absolutely always is. Now, <laughs> in the next section of our discussion, we're going to get into music and how priming, how music can become a prime and a prompt for, guess what? Moods. Oh, don't stay tuned. Anything that you would be interested in at all, would it be? <laughs> so stay tuned. Fantastic. Yeah. So one of the things that we like to talk about, as as crazy as this might seem, is we, we want to hear what kind of music you're listening to these days. You know, unfortunately or fortunately, I'm really locked into music from the deeply bedded in me through my past. Fantastic. So when I was discovering all these things, some of the music I would play, like 
one of the concepts we teach is be here now, be present. I've got a plaque on my desk that says be here now. Okay. And Cat Stevens has this just great song about where do the children play and yeah. uh, all these songs about being present. And those just bring me back to my roots to really make that happen. But I also listen to meditative music. I think music quiets the mind. And so while I like that early rock and some of those classic messages that come out of people like, like the cat. In fact, I went to a concert and sat in the front row with Cat Stevens just a few years ago. Just a, my wife and I, we cried <laughs> the whole thing. It took oh, sounds fantastic. Wow. But I think besides that, music just calms me down, quiets me. I can just listen to it in the back. And then I have music with a tempo because when I run, I run to music. So it's okay. to calm down. There's music to run to. There's music to reflect on and get messages from. You obviously with a mood elevator, right? Do you think music impacts our moods? Can we use that as a tool to help? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Anything that's a pattern interrupt. If something, if you can just go to the music and for me, think about the music and the meaning in the music, then I'm not thinking about all those other things. So uh, the way you stay up the mood elevator is do things that bring you to a better, more peaceful place, mm. bring you to a quieter mind, bring you to a, a better vision of that part of your life. So- Larry, one of the things that we've been doing is we're working with a professor from Columbia about if people uh, listen to music when they work. And we've gotten uh, just some anecdotal background uh, information for her. So do you listen to music while you're working, when you're writing or doing any of those types of, of activities? Mostly when I'm walking and running. Okay. Uh, because okay. That, that's, there's a pace to that and I go in, into that space to make it happen. I do like background music. I don't use it as much as I could. So it's actually a good clue for me because, you know, there's been research on super learning that music at 60 beats a minute tends to calm the mind. And, yeah. and that's why we use music in our seminars. It's a very important part of it. And we, we, we use it to, on breaks, lift the mood because you play yeah. certain, uh, you know, like play respect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Back in. So, so that, that's a, there's some great both energetic uh, Olympic spirit can get people going. So the different kinds of music that lifts the spirit, then there's music that quiets people down. There's one kind for reflective processes, guided imagery is another for journaling. Mm. And each of these have their place and they're, they're about really bringing you blocking out things that distract you and getting you to that calmer part of yourself, the wiser part of yourself. Fantastic. Larry, thank you so much for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves today. We really appreciated it. Okay, thank you. Okay, Groovers. So what a fantastic conversation we've had with Larry. And we just want to return to a couple of themes that we've talked about. Kurt, what, again, overarching theme for you? So this idea of gratitude, key piece. We need to have more gratitude in our life and we can be purposeful about that gratitude. Two, I think this idea that our ideas and beliefs influence our behaviors. And so we need to be thinking about those ideas and beliefs. Three, the mood elevator, this idea that our moods are there. But again, we can be thinking about our moods and therefore changing those moods and all of that leading into the importance of culture and how culture is the key to an organization's success, more so than strategy, more so than a number of other factors. And if you're purposeful about building that culture, depending 
regardless of where you are in the organization. It's very positive as we move forward. That's a fantastic recap. I would only like to add one thing, and that is Larry's unique, really, truly unique aspect of his mind-body connection. Like the way he sees physicality connected to his thinking and his brain and his mind and how he processes the world. He's in a unique position. We're not all like that. But it's a good reminder to think about if we're getting up and going to work every day, what's the physical condition of our body? And what's the musical condition that we are living in? Because that (laughs) is a prime for all of these other factors that go into all of this. So, all right. With that, please, please, if you like this episode, leave us a review, share it with a friend, all of those fun things that we talk about every week. And with that, we hope you go out and find your groove this week. 